Hello everyone and welcome to the 33rd episode of the Connectivity Podcast. I'm Matthias Fridström and I've spent the last 25 years inside the Connectivity community. In this pod, we invite guests to deep dive into one or many subjects to simply learn more about connectivity. And in this 33rd episode, I'm extremely happy to have Maxi Reynolds from Subsea Cloud with me. Hello, Maxi. Hi, hello. Okay, for the people that doesn't really know you, could you just briefly tell us who you are? I am the CEO of Subsea Cloud. I'm Scottish-born, American-living, hybrid accent. Um, <laughs> I <laughs> have a terrible sense of humor, and that's, that probably covers it. All right. <laughs> that's a really cool background. <laughs> I have obviously read something about you before this podcast to, to know some stuff, and I can, I can really see that you have a really cool background, and, and I can see that you actually started in the underwater world. Uh, so, so how did you end up there? Yeah, I worked offshore for about a decade. Um, both my dad and granddad worked offshore and I went to work offshore, oil and gas rigs mainly, some vessels, in my late teens. And it was sort of in spite of my dad, not because of him. I I wanted a job at that time, you know, sort of late teens. Um, I wanted a job where I could travel and get paid. So I asked my dad to help me get a job um, and like, what courses could I take to go offshore? And he said, no, he was like, absolutely not. That's never going to happen. So I think if he'd have said, yeah, okay, I'll help you. I'd be like, uh, I don't know. Let me think about <laughs> it. But he said no. And that was so, so it was mainly in spite of him. And then I had a very sort of interesting route into the offshore world. Actually, I called around a lot of different companies in the North Sea mainly was where I was looking because that's the only sort of oil fields that I knew about. Um, and I ended up on the phone to a Norwegian company and they said, well, like we would take you, but you need to go and learn about ROVs because um, we're looking for ROV pilots. I called them back once I had a little bit of knowledge, like, you know, two weeks worth. <laughs> and they said, no, 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 you need a little bit more than that. And if you had like a helicopter's uh, like private pilot's license, you know, the, that's really the, the gold standard. And I thought like, I don't know if they're taking the mick out of me. I don't know if they're like, I don't know if they're mocking me, but doesn't matter, I'll do it. So I went to this sort of bank in Scotland I got a career development loan and I went and I got my uh, PPL for helicopters. And then I went to a few schools also at the same time as learning on the job with them. So it was just an interesting route in and I really enjoyed it. It was the best 10 years of, of my life. It was so much fun. I had no responsibilities and too much money for a teenager so it was good <laughs> wow it sounds like a super dangerous job you know wasn't that a very dangerous job or uh, how would you classify I know. looking back yes it's a huge surprise i'm still alive but that's more to do with my risk appetite than the safety standards offshore but at the time i had no awareness of risk i i was simply uh looking for the fun in life not the I wasn't I wasn't too worried about what might happen or the consequences of my <laughs> actions so 
Wow, oh, that's that's a really really cool <laughs> background. Uh, then I understand that you moved into cybersecurity from that sort of. How, how did yeah. you end up there? Yeah, so I moved into cybersecurity because of the intersection of two things really. One, the day rate had started to drop. And I wasn't working offshore quite as consistently at this point because I was living in Los Angeles and I was becoming more and more sort of fond of the on land lifestyle with the grown ups, as we call them. When I was offshore, <laughs> we called the execs on land the grown ups because they were. <laughs> um, uh, so that was the first thing. And then the second was that. I had all of these long distance degrees from the Open University because when you work offshore, you work month on month off typically, but you also work 12 hours on, 12 hours off when you're on the rig. So I had like a few long distance degrees racked up from really the Open University. Um, and I was a little bit ready for something more, something different. So. Uh, my last offshore stint was in the US after, I think, Hurricane Irma. And I thought, okay, like, I'm done. And then I went down to Australia and I got a job on a cybersecurity team for, and I was like quite an old graduate at the time. I was like 30, 31. And there was just all these 20 year olds running around and they had more energy and they were having a lot <laughs> of fun. And I was like, oh, how are you doing this? Um, but I wound up in Australia and I got a job on like, it's it's logical hacking. So, you know, the hackers you hear about in the news, but they also done a little bit of what's called red teaming. Mm. Um, so I was, I was exposed to that and red teaming is basically you physically break into the environments because technology obviously works and we can put up a lot of and also defenses against other technology but all bets are off if I can gain access to you know the physical server itself so I came back to the US and I ended up working for a company that that really caters to that side of security that it's like a subset of security so we're breaking into places um, we were breaking into bank, mainly headquarters, less like the storefronts. So bank headquarters, pharmaceutical headquarters, um, actually a couple of prisons. So, yeah. you know, one of the few people on earth to break into a prison um, and also data centers, which was really how Subsea Cloud came about. All right. Uh, that's, that, so you say you're like physically breaking into these places. Yeah, we 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 were. It was, you know, I think if that job had have been available to me in my twenties or or, yeah. or late teens, early twenties, I would have thrived. But what happens is, you go to these places, so especially government buildings, and you know the government does contract outsiders like us. If you go to those buildings and you're trying to break in, people have guns, and I. <laughs> In my 20s, I'd have been like, I can run a bullet because I was an absolute moron. But in my 30s, I was like, I, <laughs> I can't even outrun the thrown gun. Like, I'm just going to hide in this closet until the security guards, like, leave me alone. <laughs> so <laughs> it was it was difficult, but it was fun. But there was no way I was going to be able to do it for the next, sorry, 40 years of my yeah. career. All right. I've extended my career a little bit there, mm. but there was just no way that that was going to be possible. But it was a lot of fun. And mm. we do we do day break-ins. So we go in as 
as if we belong there through the day. So maybe you're in a business suit or you're pretending to be a lawyer or a workman or something like that. And then we go back at nighttime and try and just break in as like a, a criminal gang <laughs> would. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. And, and I also understand you ended up writing a book about security as well. You know, what can you say about that? I did. So at the time when I got in, there, there, the same trends that exist now existed then. So the malware was on the rise. There was ransomware attacks on the rise. Zero day, remote code, like all of these, there was, everything was going on there, and it still is. And that can be avoided through, uh, well, not all of it, but in, in some parts, some of those types of attacks can be avoided by looking at how humans view attacks, but also how attackers look at you as a like potential hit. So the book was Attacker Mindset, and, and it was the only book written on that. Um, I wrote it over a very short period of time for Wiley. Um, and it sort of looks at the cognitive skills that it could take from an attacker's point of view. Um, and what the book says really, like reductively boiling it down, what it says is that you have to be curious and persistent, like full stop, those are the skills. But with that, you collect information, process it, weaponize it and then leverage it. And, and I say weaponize because I am looking at it through uh, red team lens so think Ocean's Eleven but less funny and sort of less attractive <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I say weaponize but I could just as easily say like collect and adapt for use so basically you use the information in ways that it's not intended by the original source and hackers do this all the time but so does everyone lawyers do that they hear both sides of the story and they pick you know the information that helps them win the case so it's it's everywhere and I'm pretty sure it's in the telecoms industry too but it is a very short book on a very sort of complex and in-depth topic and I hope that there'll be more books that focus on that aspect of security but they will not be written by me so we'll all right oh, but that's really cool that's yeah. uh, taking the attacker hackers objectives and, and look at that that's really cool okay so that kind of then took you further on and kind of entering into our business now more the communication business where you started a new company that you currently run uh, wh what is that all about <laughs> so the idea now is to consciously place rapidly provisioned modular pods that are sustainable and reduce latency. The initial idea when I was walking through one of those data centers that I'd broken into was simply, we should put these subsea because like, I have a strange intersection of, of skills um, and I was sort of, it's, it's random. I was born at the right time, like this hasn't been done at mm -hmm. scale before and I happen to work offshore and I happen to be breaking into data centers. So it was really like as simple and as artless a thought as that. And I went back and I talked to one of the guys that I originally worked for and said like, hey, what do you think of this? And I sent him like AutoCAD drawings and he called me for the first time in like 15 years. And he's like, he's laughing hysterically. And I was like, why Why would you be laughing? Is this is this not a good idea? And he, he said, are you sure you went to engineering school? And I was like, yeah, but it was in Scotland. So who knows if, you know, <laughs> who knows? Um, but basically he tweaked the design a little bit and then I said, 
would you would you like the tables to turn a little bit like would you come and work with me on this concept and he does and he, i'm like it's very good to have him um but but that was really how it came about and then the sort of elevator pitch so to speak now so what mm -hmm. we've what we've built it into is that subsea cloud is an infrastructure company and what we do is we take terrestrial land-based data centers and we place them subsea around 800 servers at a time or mm -hmm. 0.5 to 1.5 megawatts maybe mm -hmm. and by placing them subsea we eliminate the electrically driven cooling so we see a 40 percent reduction in the power consumed and a 40 percent decrease in the carbon emissions so we we can place them anywhere we put them into coastal waters typically with just over half the world's population living in close proximity to the coast and we can go into ports and rivers and we've started to look at dams too specifically within america there's a lot of dams and they're quite evenly distributed and in any case we need a minimum of 10 feet of water and we can go as deep as 9,000 feet which is about 3,000 meters yeah. which is a complete and utter flex mm -hmm. we will never go mm -hmm. we will never go that deep there's there's really no need to but you know we tested and we extrapolated to those depths actually we, we've never deployed at that but that's what the modeling tells us. All right, that's that's extremely cool. So, yeah. how has has this sort of this idea been received among your customers? You know, are uh, are people seeing this as really really cool and something that's could be used, or or only like, ah, oh, this is a test, but it's never going to fly? A little bit of both. Uh, it's been an interesting journey, and you'll hear me, hear me say this sort of countless times, not only on this podcast, but basically everywhere I talk. I completely overestimated what I could achieve in one year and what we as a company could achieve in five years. So this company has already been in operation for maybe 18 months, maybe 20 months now. Mm -hmm. And for the first 12, I was like flabbergasted, dumbfounded, couldn't believe that uh, like we didn't have a hundred pods in the water mm. already because I talked to people and they were like, yeah, it's cool, but like we don't understand like what, and, and there was a few like variables. The one, I wasn't explained it properly. I explained it like a subsea engineer and most people aren't subsea engineers and they also don't care about the technical aspects. I didn't have enough experience in business to understand how to sell it as a business. So I was giving people the technical jargon behind what we were doing instead of the business case, which really is the latency and the sustainability. But to sort of re-answer your question, I suppose, some of the conspicuous tech companies hated it and some of them loved it. So we are working with a small handful of the larger ones that we all know, and we'll mm -hmm. probably announce that next year. And we are still <laughs> waiting on a couple of the others to come, you know, back. Mm -hmm. well, I had a very interesting call with uh, one of the large social media players where they had had uh, a subsea asset go into the water and it went over budget mm -hmm. and of course it did like 
that happens from time to time. But their their extrapolation essentially was that everything subsea is more expensive. And that's actually not true. The complexities on land compared to subsea are night and day. Yes, if something goes wrong subsea, that is very bad, but it's the same on land. On land, you have like different land owners, you have different things to drill through. It takes a longer time. You're using manpower, which is slower. The There's a lot of sort of variables Putting a cable subsea, which I don't do, but have uh, done as an ROV pilot, like our company doesn't do it, but I have been there, isn't that complicated if you're doing it right. You trawl it out the back of the ship and the ship moves at a consistent speed. It's easy if everybody knows what they're doing and all the standards just are stuck to. So we had this discussion and this one exec, he was just furious and I'm not sure why, like I still can't work out to this day, was he angry just because I was going up against his ideas? Should I not have said, well, no, that's not quite right. Here's how it should work. I, I couldn't work it out. But basically he like was shouting, threw down the phone and then his team were like, well, it was nice to talk to you. You know, we'll we'll keep in touch. And of course, we never heard back. So, wow. It depends. Yeah. It depends who you're talking to. Yeah. Wow, that's really... <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, so so I guess, you know, there is a lot of, as you said, you know, there's a lot of challenges building data centers on the ground. What type of challenges you, will you have when you build them in the sea? You said there were less challenges, but one thing I remember in the, in the land side is always with this, what type of permits do you need? Is that been a problem yeah. because you're doing something that no one has done before and no one really knows what type of permits you need? Has... It will actually... So it's a... Sort of strange. It's an upside down problem, really. Um, we don't have those problems just now. The more pods we put into the water, the more we'll have that problem. We co-locate on other people's permits, and it was, uh, you know, I've spent probably the, the 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 year where I thought there should be like a hundred pods in the water. I actually spent most of that year building partnerships because people who already have subsea assets understand the risks and understand what we're doing, understand there's already compute underwater, for instance. So I basically went to the tampanets of the world, the BPs of the world, um, Chevron, those sorts of companies and said, hey, would you allow us to co-locate with you and in return we'll give you X. And for the larger oil companies, they typically want carbon credits because, you know, they have a future they're looking towards too. So permitting is not an issue for us currently. It probably will become more of an issue, um, which is, you know, and it's a whole other debate um, and discussion around permitting and the NEPA. I don't know if you're familiar with that, um, yeah. but basically we find that uh, a lot of things that could be helpful, including wind farms, um, are held back because of permitting that's actually sort of antiquated or is used or is weaponized essentially. Mm -hmm. So we will have this problem, but it's not our biggest problem. Honestly, our biggest challenge is getting people to believe that you can put, you can put compute power underwater. Yeah. We have so many like world 
contributing assets underwater and there's already compute underwater like mm. we've talked about we have wellheads and pipelines and christmas trees although obviously a different sort of christmas tree than the work that first comes to mind but we have all these things and what comes from the subsea environment is our ability to communicate as you and i are right now like down to the screens and the keyboards that we have those mm. are those come essentially from the oil and gas industry um and the subsea cables that carry the signal so a very large portion of our electricity generation too so it's getting people to believe that there's already an ecosystem down there that we rely on and what we are doing is actually not that far-fetched that's really the biggest challenge the engineering challenges have been answered 50 years ago because what we are doing our our engineering principles are simply an extension of known technology like this isn't new we didn't really create that much we took a few ideas bunged them together and we're like oh well that works let's test that and and, it, and that might make us sound sort of um i don't know there's probably there's some pejorative words it may make us sound not good and the optics might not be great but literally that's what happened we took different types of technology and put them together and here we are Thanks, everyone, for listening. In the next episode, we will continue to talk to Maxi Reynolds, so stay tuned until next time. Please also remember the Twitter handle, ConnectivityPod, for updates.